0: you're listening to the weed smart podcast each podcast we look at what's going on in each cropping region focusing on those pesky weeds
1: i'm peter newman i'm the leader of the ARI communications team I'm based in Geraldton, but I work closely with our team who are spread all around the country.
0: What's something our listeners might not know about you, Pete, unrelated to all the weed smart and ARI things you might be involved in? <laughs> <laughs> something they might not know about me.
1: I'm a keen surfer, but they probably know that about me because they might have seen my Twitter profile. Yeah,
0: that's your uh, headline image, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Not sure about that. <laughs>
1: I live in Geraldton. I'm married with two children, two girls. You might have to be more specific with the question. Any interesting
0: quirks? Do you have any strange fears?
1: Mm, not so much fears. My interesting quirks are I'm a little bit of one of those OCD people who – counts all sorts of things that really don't need to be counted, like counting the washing off the line, and then I continually have to tell myself to stop counting stuff.
0: <laughs> I'm a bit like that as well, actually. Not to that degree, though. So I can't say I've got into counting my washing off the line. but
1: No, just wait. The older you get, the worse it gets, Jess. <laughs> okay.
0: All right. So... Getting into now um, what we're going to talk about this podcast, obviously it's been quite a trying time. Hopefully most of our podcasts will be looking at more positive and other positive sort of news happening around in agriculture. But in the last couple of weeks we've seen some unfortunate situations with the floods over in the east and frost in WA. Can you tell us, Pete, a bit about what the frost means for people in WA firstly?
1: Yeah, it's obviously completely devastating. The area that the frost really hit was looking its best ever. Everyone was saying it was one of the best crops I'd ever seen in that region, in our central region and southern region, really, of Western Australia. And, yeah, so they had big crops and it's completely heartbreaking. And, it, you know, my heart goes out to the growers out there. I've no idea what that must be like. It really just means a big loss in income in a year when they thought they'd have a lot of income. In WA, really, it was sort of looking on the cards. I mean, we had an early sown crop, which was good. I think the growers would still do that again, but it was just a cold year. The whole year was cold. We kept getting cold weather, and, yeah, unfortunately, we got a number of frost events, which caused, you know, it looks like it's going to cause a really big yield loss, particularly across our cereals.
0: A bit later in the podcast, we'll be speaking with Ben Biddulph about what growers can do and what sort of approaches they can take if they've been impacted by frost. But also, we're going to have a look at what happened over east with the floods. So, what is the situation over there for people who might not be familiar?
1: Floods, obviously, once again, they looked like they were having a good growing season and then unfortunately the tap just didn't turn off. The water just kept on coming and lots of crops have gone underwater. So uh, a little bit like the frost, we don't know yet how much yield was going to be lost, but I guess for growers over there, there's big patches of paddocks that won't be harvested at all and then there's other areas where they'll lose yield because they've, the crops have grown in waterlogged, crop, in waterlogged soil. Another example of where... Things were looking good, but then um, a weather event, and uh, and that's farming, I guess, unfortunately, that sometimes no matter how good it's looking, it can still go wrong. It's not over till it's over.
0: That's it. And we will also check in with Greg Condon, who's based over east, and he'll go into a little bit more detail about the floods a bit later on in the podcast as well. And I'll also be checking in with Mike Ashworth. He is one of our researchers over at Ari and he's going to talk a bit about the more high level science stuff, we'll put our science hat on at, towards the end of the podcast. So we've got a bit of a mixed bag for the first podcast, which I think is a good thing, don't you reckon, Pete?
1: Yeah, I reckon.
0: But now we're going to speak with Ben Biddulph. We caught up with him just the other day. There's obviously been some really awful frost events over in the West. Pete, what's Ben's background?
2: Well, Ben's been the man of the moment, hasn't he, with these frosts. He's a researcher at the Department of Ag and Food. He's been researching frost and leading a team there for a few years, all things frosty. And, uh, yeah, this is obviously a big year for him, so it's really great that he gave some of his time to catch up with him.
0: Yes. All right, let's take a listen. Frost is basically has three-stage
3: response and um, effect on crop. First there's actually the cold effect of frost, so obviously as you go to low overnight minimums the plants get stressed by um, the cold effect just from the change in temperature Um, and they obviously have to change membrane fluidity um, and energy cell processes to try and maintain energy supply to developing tissue so there is a response to that initially in terms of the cold. The next thing that happens during a frost event is we actually get desiccation of the plant canopy. So when we we all know the dew forms on the canopy, but that dew then freezes during a frost event. After the dew's frozen on the canopy, it then starts to freeze the free water out of the air. But at the same time, it also starts to pull water out from the actual flag leaves and from the leaf tissue of the plants as well, out through this stomata from the mesophyll cells inside the leaves. So you actually get desiccation of the plant tissue as well. Then, obviously, as it continues to get colder through the night, we also get the ice formation within the actual plant tissue, which leads to that really bad physical damage which we see in frost.
0: Yeah, right. So it's had quite a wide um range. and broad impact in WA. We've had the coldest September in quite some time. So what is it looking like? Yeah, so
3: there's been um, a reasonable amount of frost damage this year, um, particularly in early sown barley and canolas crops um, in the central and eastern wheat belt, as well as barley in the, the upper great southern um, and to a lesser extent some wheat crops in that area as well. As we all know, you know cereal crops are very sensitive when they go through from head emergent through to flowering. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of um, flowering frost damage um, as well as some stem frost damage as well where we had showers of rain prior to those frost events in August and in the northern in the you know the central and eastern wheat belt as well as the frost events in mid to late September in the upper Great Southern and the lower great southern.
0: Pete you had some queries about nutrients, would you like to jump in?
1: Ben, I was having a think about this the other day and I was sort of thinking, right, so what are growers going to do next? They've had this terrible frost, you know, they might have crops that were looking like maybe three tons and maybe they're going to go, some of them might go 400 kilos or something. And, and they're going to pull in and harvest those ones because there is enough grain left to worry about harvesting. And then it made me think, okay, so what are they going to do about the weeds and all that biomass? And should they narrow windrow burn if they were already planning to or is it a bad idea? And the thing that was on my mind was, you know, these frosted crops, you didn't, you're not taking much grain away so there should be a lot more nutrients left in all that stem and crop residue. So we have this effect with windrow burning where when we windrow burn we sort of concentrate nutrients into the burnt windrow, mainly nitrogen and potassium.
4: Is it going to be
1: worse with the frost? Are we going to have more nutrients in that residue and therefore the nutrient drain from windrow
3: burning is going to be bigger. We will end up with concentration of nutrients um, in those windrows because normally we would have exported that. It's great. It's not a bad thing because obviously normally you would have been quite happy to have sold that nutrient that P and that K with your grain so now it would have got exported off your paddock and it would have got exported evenly off your paddock so if guys are planning on cutting low and windrow and burning anyhow yes you may see more of a windrow effect after this year because you've concentrated some of that nutrition but that nutrition pretty much is what you would have exported and sold anyhow so you haven't lost it um, but it's still in your paddock I mean the other issue we have with frosted crops is that can be quite problematic for trash flow the following year So if guys aren't planning on blanket burning their paddocks anyhow, they're pretty much going to have to cut low and windrow burn anyhow because frosted crops are very high in sugar content and that makes them very susceptible to root rot. So obviously over summer, unless you're cutting low and getting your trash flow levels down, those frosted crops are going to break off at the ground level and are going to be quite difficult to, to navigate in traffic through. That seeding next year. So just tell me a bit more about what happens there. Our crops are what we call seed limited at the moment. They don't have enough grains to put all the sugar in. So that sugar that the plant normally would have used and converted into grain ends up in the plant tissue and that's why we see all the frosted areas go really black really quickly. Um, that's because all the field moulds start to get growing, start to consume some of those sugars. But obviously that's one of the reasons why frosted crops are quite a good stock feed over summer as well because of they've got that high sugar content and why frosted crops make good hay. But the downside out of that is that The stubble quite often rots off at the ground level after a frost because it has that higher sugar content and it will get those few showers of summer rain and it'll be wet at that soil moisture interface where the roots are going through. That trash ends up basically falling over a lot more than it would in a normal year, making seeding operations more difficult next year.
1: And they're pretty big crops out there too, aren't they? (laughs) So if someone does harvest and just nips the heads off and leaves a tall stubble standing, if they don't burn that. They're going to have a lot of trouble getting through it, aren't they?
3: Yeah. It's going to be a bit of a challenge. If you've got a three-ton yield potential, essentially you've got double that in terms of, you know, you've got at least that um, in terms of the stubble that you've got to have left at seeding next year. What we are finding is that you know, stubble retention also increases the severity and duration of frost damage. That happens every year, just the position in the landscape where we find that, that we get a different system damage with the stubble removal. And so you know, guys need to be managing their stubble loads from a frost mist management point of view anyhow. So yeah, it's something they need to look at.
1: I mean, the other question is Ben, weeds. What have you seen with weeds? I've seen some photos coming through where you know there's some frosted ryegrass, but the agronomists have quoted to me they guess it's 20 or 30 percent, you know, of the ryegrass seed heads because there's later tillers coming that will set set seed. Have you got any idea about, yep. you know, how much weed control you might get from frost? Uh,
3: you do get some. Ryegrass is quite sensitive to frost, flowering frost, particularly single lot of wheat, probably more sensitive than wheat, we see that in our trials, but it's the same as wheat when you knock off those Primary tillers, the secondaries all come through and it just reallocates the carbohydrates that are in those primary tillers uh, to produce new tillers. So it'll keep flowering essentially and keep tillering and keep flowering because it's still got more sugar reserves. And so, you know, you still get a reasonable wheat. So you don't actually get much, I don't think you'll get much reduction in wheat set of ryegrass with frost. Wild oats yeah, is probably so. a little bit different. Wild oats and brome grass, I don't really have an opinion on I haven't had a good look at those. But I have noticed definitely with ryegrass it is quite sensitive at
1: flowering, but it just retails. Ben, this frost is a disaster for WA. It was a really terrible event. Is there any positives? Is there any good news in in this frost? There's <laughs> not good news, but is there any positive?
3: I mean, there are in terms of, you know, how guys go about setting up for next year. Um, a lot of guys who have cut crops for hay, um, that does open up their rotational options for next year. And obviously, you know, there's also been a lot of crop topping going on this year because guys can see that they don't have the yield potential there. And so they're getting crops a little bit earlier than they would to, to try and improve their weed seed and weed set control. So there are certainly guys in the industry who are taking advantage of... Uh, the fact that they've had a good competition, um, they're going
1: to be really cleaning up some weeds this year. And nutrition, am I right in guessing that if uh, if you've had a frosted crop and you haven't harvested much grain out of it, you're not going to need as much fertiliser next year as you might have otherwise?
3: Yeah, well, obviously that grain hasn't exported uh, as much nutrition as it would normally have, um, and so that will have an impact on your, on your nutrient budgets for next year. So next year, with potentially less fertiliser, our weed
1: control can be better, and those people that have sprayed out early are potentially storing a bit of moisture now, perhaps, so I mean, the setup for next year is good, but obviously, um, you know, it's still pretty disastrous that so they lost a lot of income this year.
3: Yeah, there's definitely been a big opportunity cost for that. It's not the ideal way to set it up.
0: And is there any other yeah. comments that you have, Ben, that you'd that you like to make in regards to
3: the frosted crops that people would be, benefit from <coughs> knowing? I mean, at this stage, there's still a lot of people who aren't uh, interested in, in looking at assessing frost damage. That's fine. Different people have different ways of managing dealing with frost. Some people like to go out you know, the next day and you know, pretty much trying to find out where the frost damage is and some don't even bother to look until they've got the header out. There's many different ways to approach it and to deal with it um, and most of those are fine. It's just a matter of, you know, working out what suits you and as you're going forward but also to make sure that you are aware that there will be there's the potential financial impact of it and to help and make sure you look at discussing that with your consultants and with your financial advisors as well.
0: It was great to hear from Ben. He was really generous with his time, wasn't he, Pete?
2: Yeah, no, that is great and he's yeah, he's been really busy, so good to catch up with him.
0: And one of the key and really important things which we are going to talk about in a little bit more detail was what we can do with windrows. Would you like to expand a little bit more on that?
2: Yeah, I guess if we just think broadly, like the growers that have been frosted, it's a big issue and they're going to lose a lot of income and so they are going to be struggling, you know, to to pay for fertilizer for next year. So they want to keep their fertilizer bill as low as possible. And so if we go and windrow burn and uh, put a lot of nutrients in that windrow and we cause an increase in the requirement for nutrients next year, that's quite a drain on the farm business because these guys have just been hit financially. So what they want to do is try and maximise the amount of nutrients returned to their soil. So it's very tricky because there's conflicting things going on. They want to get some harvest weed seed control and they want to remove some of this residue from the paddock so they don't have stubble flow issues but on the other hand if they windrow burn they're going to be putting a lot of nutrients in that windrow which they then have to replace. So there's no easy solution here but just I guess to make growers aware that
0: if they windrow burn there there is a nutrient cost to that. Yeah definitely it's really important. We got the opportunity to speak with Ben for quite some time and we also spoke with him about the research trials and there were some conflicts potentially there. Pete can you just explain to people what they need to be considering in that regard?
2: Well, it's interesting, Jess. A couple of years ago, I spoke at Wickerpin about harvest weed seed control and weed management and so on, and one of the growers took me aside afterwards and said, it's really tricky. We're getting conflicting messages from you versus the frost guys, and it is hard for growers because some of the things Ben said was high seeding rates, for example, more frost whereas we might say high seeding rates, better crop competition with weeds. And so there's a real conflicting message there for the growers. So we really need to sort some of these things out. Some of the things Ben did say to us was that Wide row spacing, so we both agree on row spacing actually that narrow row spacing is better. They would think that wide row spacing would be better for frost, but in actual fact their research so far has found out that narrow row spacing has been better. So narrow row spacing, good for weeds and frost. East-West sowing good for weeds Uh, they would think it's worse for frost but haven't found uh, that in their data yet but definitely the seeding rate issue is where we are conflicting so it is a bit tricky for growers when you've got one person saying one thing for weeds and another for frost I guess we need to sort of sit down and work out which of those things is good for both.
0: So what would you advise growers to do in the meantime then with this conflicting information?
2: I guess try and find the things where we agree. So at the moment, that seems to be row spacing. uh, East-West sowing, the jury's out and whole paddock burning is the frost guys are saying that can reduce the incidence of frost a little bit and we would say that can be good for reducing the weed seed bank and getting pre-emergent herbicides working well. So we are agreeing on some things but that seeding rate issue is probably one where uh, the growers might need to work out what's the most important thing and a lot of growers are probably going to say frost is most important. So I would say if, you're, if you go narrow row spacing at a moderate seeding rate, you're probably still going to have good enough crop competition.
0: Yeah, right. That is very important information for people, especially with the frost events that we've had.
2: We haven't fully resolved it, I think, Jess. We're going to have to talk more about these conflicting messages in the future, Uh, and we apologise to growers for having these conflicts, but it is something that we will talk more about and get a good, consistent message.
0: And we'll be keeping everyone in the loop on this podcast, this brand new shiny podcast. But the West has not only been hit by some hard weather, over East they've been having floods which have had quite a big impact particularly for some growers more than others. And we got to speak with Greg Condon recently as well about the impact. Give us a little bit of a background on Greg. He's part of our team. He's a pretty cool guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, Greg uh, Greg and I are a little bit similar. We're both people with an agronomy background who like surfing. Unfortunately for Greg, he lives a long way inland now, So, and yeah. I get to live on the coast, which uh, is lucky for me in terms of surf. Uh, Greg and his wife, Carly both have a background in the New South Wales DPI, so got to do that really good training and then went into business for themselves with Grassroots Agronomy and they run a successful agronomy business between the two of them.
0: All right, let's take a listen to what Greg has to say about the impact on of floods on growers in the east.
5: Greg Condon with Grassroots Agronomy, Southern New South Wales, working with a range of clients in mixed farming and Continuous cropping operations across the uh, across the region.
0: What's something that people might not know about you, which is not related to ag? Uh, maybe something quirky. Uh,
5: yeah, I grew up on the coast and I've lived away from it for a long time, but. Yeah, recently down there, and just love getting back in the water. So it's uh, we're a fair way from the beach at this part of the world, but yet really, uh, when you get back to it, it brings it all um, brings it all home straight away. And it's good to sort of hit the surf that very recently and start to experience a bit of that and teach the kids how not to be scared of the surf as well. So that's a bit of a yeah. We grew up close to the ocean, and and because we're so far away from it now, just want want them to be comfortable with it as well, which uh, is is hard, but it's not second nature for them. They yeah prefer to. uh,
0: On a more serious note, we've had extreme weather conditions across Australia, really. Lots of um, agricultural regions have been hit pretty hard by some pretty crazy weather and on the east, floods has really had quite the impact. Can you just go into a bit of detail about what impact floods have had on agricultural regions over east?
5: So generally in uh, in our patch, particularly New South Wales, central and southern New South Wales, and then into I, I guess Victoria as well. So um, the Wimmera and um, yeah central north areas of Victoria, we've had uh, rainfall basically from the winter. So it started in in May and it's just been above average rainfall basically for the whole growing season. So. The profile has been saturated from quite early in the winter so it just uh, got to the end of winter and then early spring and uh, you've got a saturated catchment and there's just been no nowhere for the water to go so all the major, uh, I guess, watercourses are filled up really quickly from that point in in early part of winter and um, there's been a lot of, uh, I guess, cloud and cool conditions as well. So the crops or the pastures haven't been using any water. So we've just had such above average rainfall, you know, decile sort of eight to nine, up to 10 for the growing season. That's now compounded to the last, particularly September. A lot of places had, um, you know, 100 plus mils for September. So it, it just sort of blew things out onto an already saturated catchment.
0: So in terms of what this means for weed management, what would you say people need to be aware of in that regard?
5: Well, there's two aspects. So uh, I guess the, the, the first thing that comes to mind is there's been a lot of overland flow. So you've got water moving across the catchment, uh, across large distances, particularly in some of the flatter areas where the topography is, um, yeah, there's sort of, you've got water can move it long long distances and carry weed seeds with it. So that's the first point, so we're seeing um, water move across areas that growers who might have been farming there for 20 or 30 years are seeing water in places come from sources they haven't ever seen before, so that's quite unique in this year. And then secondly, you've got the effect of crop death and and poor crop vigor and growth due to waterlogging is then influencing its crop competition, so there's a lot of uh, weeds that are germinating later in the season because, uh, again, it's just stayed wet for so long, so we're seeing uh, particularly wild radish uh, and and ryegrass and and a lot of those late sort of water weeds like loose strife are emerging in crops and, and due to the lack of crop competition, and such favourable conditions for weeds, they're really uh, setting up for a a big weed seed opportunity. Yeah, probably wild radish is the one that's really caught us off guard this year, just seeing the late germinations. And that's sort of compounded too by the the limited access a lot of growers had to complete their post-emergent broadleaf spraying. They were able to get on and get a lot of the early stuff done, particularly canola for grass weeds, but they were unable to do a lot of the broadleaf spraying in in cereal crops and those weeds have just been left unchecked all year because they just physically haven't been able to get on paddocks other than use aerial operations with planes or choppers, but it got to a point in August, early September where we couldn't even land a lot of those, um, a lot of that aerial support. So it's just, uh, you've sort of got a, a perfect storm in terms of weeds where we haven't been able to spray them. You've got poor competition. And then this, the soil just staying wet for so long, so they're yeah. In some areas, this is this is a big generalisation, and you might have a paddock that could only be 20 to 30% affected, but in that 20 to 30%, that's where the weeds will um, build up in number and have the potential to set a lot of seed and and then spread into the rest of the paddock if not managed.
0: What are some of those management strategies people can do going forward when conditions start to improve weather-wise?
5: Well, we're seeing it already, so we've had a, a warm week this week, Jess, and that's making a difference to people starting get back onto paddocks. Growers are going through their options. For example, the most drastic option is to uh, go in and spray fallow those areas out so that um, if you have a big blowout with, with weed seeds like ryegrass on 15 or 20% of a paddock, we'll just cut the cord and basically apply a glyphosate combination or, or, or the like and then spray out the crop and the weed seeds in those areas so we don't carry any weeds into next year the option to um, cut some of those areas for hay um, so which is i guess challenging in itself given that the ground is so wet but and regular rainfall events coming through but so some of the cereal crops that have big weed seed burdens in them they will be cut for hay and then sort of going to a bit more integrated approach is particularly with say a crop like lupins where we've got a lot of wild radish numbers have, have got away employing some of the harvest weed seed tactics like uh, narrow windrow burning is probably the most common. Yeah, you've got some of the other more sophisticated tools like chaff lining or chaff decks to actually capture the weed seeds and then to put them in, a, in an area of the paddock or, or, or an area of the crop for next year where you know you can do something about it so. And the other tactic that we'll probably see a lot more used this year It's, it's used in other parts of, of Australia particularly South Australia and and in the West. We'll see in New South Wales and Victoria in canola particularly a, a large adoption of crop topping in canola. So we've got Canola crops, for a number of reasons, haven't grown a lot of dry matter this year. So again, their crop competition is quite poor. So we're seeing grass weeds like ryegrass, wild oats competing with the crop. So crop topping with a registered product like Weedmaster DSC, which is a glyphosate product, prior to windrowing over the top or under the cutter bar at windrowing, is a tactic a lot of growers will employ to help control those late emerging uh, grass weeds, particularly ryegrass. Prior to harvest, so that'll be a, um, a really useful tool in a year like this, where we're seeing weed seeds uh, potentially going to have some high numbers if we don't manage them.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, you know,
5: the, the ultimate is you know doing something like crop topping in either canola or, or using it in pulses, and then uh, following it with a harvest weed seed tactic like um, yeah windrow burning or, or chaff lining or, or chaff decks or the like.
0: And is there any so, other considerations growers should be making at this time, do you think, or does that pretty much kind of cover the bases?
5: Yeah, well, the key thing too is to actually record. So, I mean, a lot of growers are, are very diligent anyway when they're in the header recording either on their uh, on their phone or in, an, in a notebook what weeds are in paddocks. So, we've got a few surprises this year. It's just comment in some areas where there's a, a lot of silver grass. So, vulpia is, um, has come up in some crops that we haven't seen in a long time. It just gets certain weeds are, are seasonal in certain. Seasons, but it's the big bleed as, as we know nationally, like wild radish and, and ryegrass and wild oats. So we need to record what weeds are setting seed in paddocks that we've had escapes due to the, the lack of um, access on paddocks or um, or the flooding problems, and that with the rotation planning for next year. So we're already into rotation planning mode now with clients as uh, as they're thinking about what they're going to do in certain paddocks for next year. Uh, a lot of them have fairly well fixed type rotations, but there's also flexibility around crop types due to seasons and whatnot. So um, we'll then yeah, start to build some of the um, planning story around some of the, the weeds that are potentially going to be in paddocks that normally wouldn't be there given the, the nature of the wet season. You know, if our paddocks are going to take a high ryegrass burden into next year or a high wild oats burden into next year, we might then have to sort of look at what our options are in terms of crop types. So rotation's still a pretty powerful tool for weed management. Um, and then also some of the uh, the, yeah, the other tactics like uh, crop competition and and um, yeah pre-emergent herbicide use and and those sort of options. So yeah, as people are planning, we urge them to yeah try and take really good records of what weeds are setting seed in that paddock and the influence that will have on the rotation for next year and subsequent years.
0: Definitely, sage advice, Greg. <laughs>
5: All right.
0: <laughs> well, um, I think that kind of pretty much covers it. Thanks. Very yeah. Much.
5: I- yeah, I guess the uh, the bottom line in terms of the flooding, there's some areas, particularly central New South Wales, that have had some severe losses, and and we. Uh yeah, we feel for those farmers where they've seen big areas of of crop loss and then and then you have other areas where, as I said before, we've just had uh, parts of uh, parts of paddocks that might have only been affected from um, yeah ten to twenty percent, which is still it's going to be a loss. But yeah, on on some of those more elevated country, there's, there'll be some some quite good yields to be had. So it's a real um, yeah, it's it's going to be a real contrast between some growers that have been severely affected, um, and that's the same into Victoria. Um, and, and South Australia, and then others that are that on on the main in some of the drier areas are going to harvest potentially some of their uh, their better yields that they haven't seen in a long time.
0: Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Greg. We'll chat again soon. Always, no Well, it was great to hear from Greg, and obviously. Heat, there's going to be some growers who actually might benefit from this high rainfall, but hopefully it dries out for those other growers who've been really hit by a lot of rain.
2: Yeah, well, I have seen some things on Twitter this week where some crops have emerged out of the swamp and started to recover. Hopefully there's more of those uh, starting to recover and it's not as bad as it looks, but uh, yeah, certainly sounds like there's areas of paddocks where, where people won't harvest much at all.
0: Yes, definitely. Well, in lighter news, we also have recently released an RE Insight and we focused on a paper which Mike Ashworth worked on, which was in regards to 2,4-D. Can you give us a little bit of a background on uh, this area, Pete? This
2: research is about low rates of herbicides and that sort of causing herbicide resistance. And it goes back, we used to argue about this. We didn't really know whether low rates or high rates were responsible. Turns out both of them will cause... Was resistance but they sort of cause different types of resistance and so Paul Neve really started it all with RE looking at low rates of hoegrass diclofop methyl in ryegrass back in the 90s and found that yeah exposing ryegrass to low rates of diclofop quickly evolved resistance and I think that was like 70 fold resistance or something like that after just four generations so that sort of threw the cat amongst the pigeons and made us all realise that yes low rates are a bad thing and this research by Mike Ashworth is now the first time that it's been done in a dicot species, wild radish, and showing a similar result that low rates of 2,4-D causing 2,4-D resistance.
0: Yes, right. And the paper has quite a long name as well. People did want to know what the actual paper is called. It's recurrent selection with reduced 2,4-D amine doses results in the rapid evolution of 2,4-D herbicide resistance in wild radish. Quite a mouse
2: yeah, Scientists like quite long names, yes. don't
0: they? <laughs> they love them. <laughs> but they <it's> like... <laughs>
2: like big acronyms as well.
0: That's it. But some really interesting um, information in that paper and the RE Insight. If you're like me and would like some things a bit condensed and explained in, in sort of more less sciencey terms, then that's available on the RE website as well. <laughs> Well, I caught up with Mike not too long ago. Let's take a listen. I'm just sitting with Mike Ashworth, one of our researchers. So I'll just get you to tell us a bit about yourself.
4: G'day, Jess. Yeah, I, um, I've got a uh, strong heart for, for agriculture. I uh, grew up on a farming property uh, near Northam, and we also had a farm out near Corder. Back when I first left school, I did an engineering qualification, so I'm an what we call an engineering metallurgist. But um, following that, I went back to uni and um, went right through and did my PhD um, here at Ari looking at uh, wild radish and herbicide resistance.
0: So what's something people might not know about you, Though, maybe something a bit quirky about you, Mike?
4: Well, um, unfortunately, I'm a uh, what what we call a highly frustrated city person. I, I have a real love for the farm, and um, so I really miss those wide open spaces, and I've got a real passion for V8s. So I love to watch the car races and, um, yeah, get stuck into that, so...
0: All right. So that's good to know, getting to know our scientists around the traps. But we do have a paper that's recently been put out on 2,4-D. So can you just firstly tell us what the paper title is and what you looked at?
4: Uh, yeah, Jess. So uh, what I did was we our paper's called Recurrent Selection with Reduced 2,4-D Amine Doses Results in the Rapid Evolution of 2,4-D Herbicide Resistance in Wild Radish. It's an interesting paper because um, as we know about wild radish, it's very genetically diverse. and it's also an outcrossing species it's all very much like ryegrass like lollium and um, what we know from Lollium is that when we use low doses of metabolizable herbicides, we really do get a lot, a, a real rapid rise in herbicide resistance. So we want to test that. This was the first time we ever tested in a dicot species. So what I did in this study is I took 300 uh, completely susceptible wild radish plants, and I recurrently selected them with um, reduced 2,4-D amine rates, basically rates that gave us about 80 to 85% control of the population and I did that for four years and um, we rapidly developed resistance.
0: So what implications then does that have for people out in the field, for growers and agronomists?
4: What it does tell us is those lessons that we learned about annual ryegrass, about using low rates, is exactly the same for wild radish. So any species, whether it be a monocot, whether it's a broadleaf species, we cannot use low rates of metabolizable herbicides. So following four generations of low-dose 2,4-D selection, we developed an 8.6-fold shift in resistance to 2,4-D. So basically, after four generations, we had lost effectiveness of controlling that wild radish population um, with the field applied rate. So at the field applied rate, we were getting approximately 40 to 45% of the population still surviving that rate. It's quite scary.
0: And that kind of goes against the grain of what people might have thought in terms of application rates, doesn't it?
4: Well, it just means that we've got to be so careful when it comes to it. So whenever we apply herbicide, it has to be applied incredibly well, and it has to be applied in a way that gives us full mortality or full control of the population. One of the real scary things in this study was the fact that we developed cross-resistance. That's resistance to a herbicide that the population has never seen before. So we we developed resistance to the ALS inhibitors, mainly chlorosulfuron and metazolam. So that's uh, basically glean and eclipse. So what happened there was we developed a a four-and-a-half and a four-fold shift to those herbicides. So... The dangerous thing about using low doses of 2,4-D is that we also lose effectiveness of our ALS inhibitors, which are really important to us. So whatever we do, don't use a low rate. That's the main message.
0: And are there any other points uh, aside from that core message that you'd like to share or just to put out there for people to understand?
4: What we know about annual ryegrass is that it's just incredibly genetically diverse and this study really does highlight the kind of beast wild radish is to manage. Whenever we're managing wild radish we really need to rotate things and keep diversifying everything that we do to keep keep the population on its toes. It's a very genetically diverse species and it's going to adapt to any we do so just be careful to mix it up a lot
0: all right thanks mike thanks jess all right so it was great to hear from mike there what are the ramifications of all of this research pete
4: well, obviously
2: in Australia there's ramifications and it just shows the same thing that higher rates of herbicide are a good idea to try and prevent herbicide resistance. But this really has big implications for American farmers. So there's big problems across a big area with glyphosate resistant weeds, their palmer amaranth and their water hemp and so on. So they have glyphosate resistant weeds and one of the big solutions is to roll out more crops that have new traits for resistance to new herbicides or in this case dicamba and 2,4-D type herbicides. So they are similar to 2,4-D that Mike used in this study and it really is a warning sign to the American farmers that if they really do rely on these phenoxy type herbicides in the future that they really could come unstuck there as well. So this really sounds a warning to those growers and it really highlights the fact that they really need to be spraying very robust rates on small weeds to get the best out of that technology.
0: Definitely. Well, we've come to the end of our first podcast, Pete, and there was quite a bountiful amount of information, some good, some bad, some science Yeah, science-y.
2: well some sciencey. We're going to try and mix it up with a bit of science and a bit of what's happening around the traps. Hopefully in the future we won't be uh, reporting on as many negative issues, maybe a few more positive ones. But yeah, good to get our first podcast out of the way, Jess.
0: Yes, maybe the weather will be more kind. We can only hope. The weather is the weather. That's right. All right. Well, thank you for listening and feel free to subscribe. We'd love to have you listening regularly. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is a really great way to keep up to date with what the RE team is doing. Our handle is at RE underscore team. So feel free to go and give us a follow there too. Thanks everyone.